0: To the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host James Huang. Joining me today are Cycling Tips Tech Editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. We also have right next to me here Ace Mechanic Zach Edwards of the Boulder Groupetto. Hello, Zach. Hello. Uh, and unfortunately, not joining us today, at least for now, is our Editor in Chief Kaylee Fretz, whose whose uh, attendance today was dependent on whether or not his newborn daughter's uh, whether or not his newborn daughter was napping. So. Uh, maybe he'll be joining in later. I wouldn't count on it though. But anyway, it feels like I've been gone for a while. What'd I miss? It's mm, not much. Some I mean, conversation about
1: bikes. And don't we
0: usually talk about bikes?
1: True. Very true.
0: I f- like, should we, should we expand into something other than bikes?
2: Would anybody listen? Probably not.
1: Judging by the complaints uh, people are getting on their 10 most favorite or 10 most loved products of the year for for covering things such as such radically different things outside of cycling, such as favorite music and um, sparkling water in Abby's case. Um, Yeah, maybe we should just stick to bikes. Hmm.
0: I I feel like this is one of those things where we don't want to get yelled at or we don't want to get comments from people telling us to stay in our lane.
1: Mm. Is
0: that right? It Hmm. seems so. It seems so. Okay. Well, anyway, luckily for everyone listening to this right now, we are actually going to be talking about bikes. Uh, We have an excellent show for you today, as always, covering a wide range of tech topics, such as Bianchi's new Italian bike factory, whether or not you really need or want convertible geometry on your gravel bike, why the heck anyone would actually want to consider buying a derailleur hanger tool for your home workshop, whether tire brands should be printing recommended sealant amounts right on the tire, and then... The triumphant return of our Ask a Mechanic segment, where we address our Velo Club members' burning questions about bicycle maintenance, repair, upgrades, and all things tech.
1: It's been a while since we had one of those.
0: It has been. It has been. Well, I did take two weeks off, and, like, things were kind of weird. And Anyway, we're back to the normal schedule, just in time to take a break over the holidays. So anyway, <laughs> all right, first up, this Bianchi factory So Bianchi has actually broken ground on a massive new 30,000 square meter or 325,000 square foot uh, uh, facility in Treviglio, Italy in the Bergamo region just outside of Milan. Uh, This facility will serve as the company's new headquarters. It'll also house a company museum Most interesting from a tech perspective, however, is that Bianchi plans to incorporate bike frame manufacturing here with capacity for up to a thousand bikes per day. Now, according to the article that was in Bicycle Retailer and Industry News about this, uh, Bianchi didn't really say this explicitly, but based on quotes uh, by Bianchi president and owner Salvatore Grimaldi, it sounds like bike production will primarily be focused on carbon, not aluminum, which is not only noteworthy because carbon frame production has overwhelmingly been in, uh, been in Asia, but also because Bianca has never produced carbon frames domestically in any sort of real volume. I feel like we've talked several times before in previous episodes about how some companies are starting to pull back from doing all their manufacturing in Asia, and this seems like a pretty big step in that direction. What do you mm-hmm. think of this?
1: Yeah, it's Big investment. Um, I think they're, they're saying it's over 40 million euro investment for, for the company. And it's a big number. It's a big number. Uh, but yeah, I think the whole trend of uh, reshoring is is becoming more and more common in the industry. Uh, I mean, we saw Ibis Cycles uh, invest in their own carbon facility recently. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of other examples that I'm forgetting about. There's 3T. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's quite a few brands that are, have announced plans. And I guess Bianchi's probably one of the larger ones that we've heard of to date.
0: Probably the largest one that I can think of anyway. Yeah. Um, this idea of, of reshoring, well, there's a, there's, I have a couple of different thoughts on this and we touched on a little bit of this in the regular weekly show, but this was being billed by Bianchi as a reshoring thing. But it is worth pointing out that Bianchi has never really made carbon frames in Italy Correct. before, no. um, so it's kind of really just more a a start to making carbon frames in Italy. Um, a lot of people will probably speculate that this is something that's been brought brought about by a lot of the supply chain headaches uh, from the pandemic. However, I think it's important to note that this COVID pandemic, all things considered, is still fairly new, I and mean, we're we're you know barely two years into it. And it strikes me that this sort of thing probably would have taken a lot more time than two years from start to, from start to, well, from planning phase to actually breaking ground. So my guess is that yeah. Bianchi has been planning this for a while.
1: I think so. I think it's, there's a bit of a competitive advantage element here because when, sure. when you're a company like Bianchi with so much uh, history around the brand and then you're manufacturing in Asia, it kind of makes your brand, I guess it opens you up to being a little bit generic right? It kind of takes away the the passion of the brands. I think this realistically, you know, it's like, it's the same reason why Colnago still produces their C-Series in in Italy, is that it I think it helps sell them bikes. And I think this will let Bianchi maintain their high prices or even go higher end uh, in some cases.
2: I mean, I feel like because the last maybe decade or so, Bianchi, I feel like I mean, they've still existed and still been making bikes, but they've kind of fell from the top of the list of bikes that people really want they at lost least their around luster, here I yeah i think from especially on the high end side mm-hmm. like i'm not saying that their bikes have been bad but Mm-mm. they've definitely kind of fallen fallen from the top and i think it would be really cool to see see them kind of make a comeback and kind of be competitive again and really make some awesome bikes yeah
0: um in other you know, talking to other companies over the last few years that have been either bringing back domestic manufacturing or basing their businesses on domestic manufacturing in general. Um, like you said, Dave, I mean, there are certainly a lot of competitive advantages to having your production be physically close to where your R and D happens. Mm. Um, and with Bianchi, I I do wonder what this means in terms of where they are going to go in terms of their market position. Like you said, Dave, I mean it it could be that they're going to move higher end. Um, but so much of Bianchi's appeal, uh, like both of you mentioned, is based on this whole, you know, being based in Italy thing. Uh, and if they actually are now able to say that the frames are like really, really manufactured in Italy, and if they're able to capitalize on some of that heritage and culture and stuff, then I think that might appeal to a lot of people. Um, I, mean, I certainly don't think that there's anything inherently bad with manufacturing in asia i think it mm. probably technically I, I personally myself was probably manufactured in asia to a certain extent <laughs> um but uh but for sure like as, as far as just r d goes like why wouldn't you want to have all that stuff closer together than having to spread everything across the globe and across time zones and everything
2: i mean i think just purely from a adjusting to new market trends or like reacting to things is going to cut out quite a bit of time, like between, Oh, that's a good idea. And then the finished product, like it's just going to cut a lot of that out rather than dealing with what the factory in Asia wants to do and time zones and shipping and everything. It's just like cuts out so much of that that that'll, I mean, I would think that theoretically they could react to new trends a lot quicker. Um,
0: I guess a big reason why all of these things have been manufactured in Taiwan and China to begin with historically has been, Because the labor costs have been so much lower than they would have been in North America or uh, Western Europe or something like
2: that. And they also do carbon so good over there. well, Well,
0: they've been doing it for so long that they've been able to get so good at it. Um, But now the way that the Taiwanese economy has come up and the way the Chinese economy in particular has come up, those labor costs aren't quite as low as they once were. So there are, I mean, they're still not on par with what we see in a lot of other, I guess, a lot of the the Western world. But that competitive advantage price wise, I think, is not quite as appealing as it used to be. And I remember talking to uh, Tony Karklins, who uh, I guess previously was Orbea USA and then founded allied cycle works here in the U S um, but I remember talking to him not long after allied or after not too long after he kicked off the allied brand. And he had mentioned that the idea that things are so much cheaper to make in Asia doesn't really apply anymore because even if the labor costs are still lower, there are all these other hidden costs that you don't always account for um, yeah, you could have a problem with manufacturing that it has to go through a revision. You've got all this scrap. You have all these time losses. You have all these shipping costs now that are totally amplified recently. So, I I wonder, I wonder if Bianchi is able to, to do this without actually making their stuff much more expensive. I think that'll that'll be no, that, that remains to be seen. But I don't know if it's going to be that much more.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are seeing like as China and, and Taiwan have become, um, you know, I guess truly uh, respected manufacturers of carbon fiber and their prices have gone up um uh, we are seeing some carbon manufacturers move to like vietnam for example like quite a few bikes uh quite a few high-end carbon bikes are now manufactured in vietnam for example my my ibis my mountain bike is made in vietnam um so i think that there are still low cost options but then with that there's a risk right like there's political instability in some of these countries. And and that is a big factor as to why these brands that can afford to want to have more control over their manufacturing. Um, So I think there's a lot of reasons here. Uh, And I think cost is absolutely one of them. But I think really just owning your brand and owning your manufacturing is probably fundamentally what's behind this 40 million euro investment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, One thing I... I'm really wondering
0: about is for a long time, a lot of Italian bike brands have continued to say that their bikes were made in Italy when ultimately what was happening is they were kind of skirting these rules about, you know, manufacturing origins they and were stuff painted like that. in Italy. Yeah. So like <laughs> if, if a certain amount of content was done there or like final assembly or whatever, they, they were able to say that their things were made in Italy when the frames were actually molded in Asia. I wonder if actually this might kind of come and bite Bianchi in the butt a little bit now, because if they've sort of been claiming on a bunch of bikes now that the bikes were made in Italy, when they weren't really molded in Italy, like how much is that going to take away from the appeal now of the bikes actually being made in Italy? Like, are they really
1: going to be able to tout that? I'm not really sure how many people were really unaware of that anyway i think a lot of people aren't aware and i think uh memory is short i think it won't take long for that for (laughs) something like that to blow over (laughs) true um yeah if if i'm being perfectly honest i mean at the moment people uh not to not to mention names but pinarello is you know their, their whole branding is based around people thinking that it's and it's a wholly italian made frame and you know it there are elements that are made in Italy and it's obviously a very unique design and there's other reasons why it costs so much, but those frames are not, (laughs) yeah. So I think, you know, I think, yeah, Bianchi's probably not, uh, not the one that uh, needs to be under fire here. True, true. Well, (laughs) in any event, this is a pretty big development. Um,
0: I think it's estimated that they're going to start being able to, they're going to start actually producing frames. I think uh, the article said 2023 Um, which realistically is not that far off. Um, And I know the total frame capacity is quoted as being, I think they said a thousand bikes per day. And we'll see what that actually starts out being, or, you know, kind of what the steady state number really is, but it'll be Mm -hmm. a pretty big number no matter what. Um, But I'm I'm pretty
2: excited about it. I mean, 2023, they could order group sets now and might have them by then. (laughs) (laughs) Oh
0: God. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Uh, All right. Well, Coming from the opposite side of this, uh, 51 is an Irish brand that has been, uh, They kind of made their name out of doing fully custom tube to tube carbon frame manufacturing. Uh, And Dave, you recently reviewed a new bike from them called the Assassin, just kind of a questionable name, I think, personally. Mm. (laughs) Um,
1: This new bike is
0: pretty, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This
1: new bike is pretty different for them though, to say the least. Dave, what's the lowdown on this? Uh, yeah so they previously made all their frames in Dublin Ireland and this one is made in China uh and without custom geometry so it's it's their entry into production frames so uh yeah and it's it's basically they decided that they wanted a gravel bike that can kind of be whatever its user wants it to be so they um the owner of the company um Aiden Duff kind of referenced that some of the bigger brands like Specialized uh they have the market size to offer multiple gravel gravel bikes to sort of cover a broad spectrum of what gravel means to people. Uh, so these days you might even have, you know, a bike packing bike, you'll have a a fast race gravel bike, and there might be like sort of a middle ground comfortable gravel bike. Um, and he said for a company their size, that's just not feasible to have all these different models. And from their point of view, it's like gravel's constantly changing. So why not have one bike that kind of can cover the broad spectrum and let the user decide what end of that spectrum they want the bike to be at and then have the ability to change it and how big a spectrum are we talking about on this thing there's some pretty clever things going on here they're not you they're not the first to do this i think uh rondo maybe were the the first to have such a, a design but basically there's you can adjust the rear chain stays uh and it's kind of at a slanted angle so it changes the bottom bracket height at the same time so um 430 millimeters is the the center position. You can go five millimeters in either direction from there. But then what's really interesting is the fork has a flip chip, um, which changes the rake of the fork, but it also changes the height of the fork at the same time. So if you put it onto the the lower trail setting, then the front end gets lower and the whole bike becomes more aggressive. Uh, And then in the long trail setting, the bike sits taller. So the head angle is slackened out. Uh, and, and it's really interesting cause you can actually change that front flip chip in like two minutes and you don't even have to adjust the brake for it. So it's, um, it's, it's quite a, a cool idea and you can really transform the bike, like make a noticeable difference to how the bike handles in, in with, yeah, without even spending all that much time. Like it's, it's it was literally a, you take the through axle out, you grab a 2.5 millimeter hex key, undo two bolts, flip the chips, put the wheel back in um so yeah it's it's a cool cool idea i guess where i really like the bike is just that there's no proprietary or limiting elements to what you can fit to the bike so you know you can put any drivetrain on it you can put any uh just about any crankset you want on it uh any stem any seat post so it just it's just a very open platform for making it what you want it to be
0: so would you say that it sounds like to you anyway um it sounds like the the it was very quick to make those changes. Like it sounds like you could even potentially do a trail side. Um, but were those changes in geometry tangible in your perspective?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because the, the rear flip chip, like five millimeters in a rear chainstay, I can feel the difference, but it's subtle. And I think there are a lot of people out there that would make the change and perhaps not pick up on the differences. Uh, but for me, the, the front fork flip chip, uh, it was making a, quite a large difference to the trail figure. And also to the ride height, and that has all sorts of other consequences. Uh, that was noticeable. Yeah, it, it certainly the bike went from like being this like kind of single track smasher where you felt like really confident, sort of behind the rear, behind the axle of the of the front wheel, and sort of you know, really capable and confident on descents, to being much more feeling like a almost like a cyclocross bike or or, or like your road going gravel bike. Um, so yeah, it it did feel like two bikes in one. Okay. Um,
0: well, as you mentioned, this, this certainly isn't the first drop bar bike that we've seen with convertible geometry. I mean, you said Rondo certainly was, if not the first, was it certainly one of the first to do this. You've got several models from like Otso, the first generation check, uh, Trek checkpoint had that, um, newer bike, like the Allied Echo, the the Cervelo Aspero, um, and Canyon was doing this on their road bike like a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's probably been several more that I'm forgetting, Um, but it it seems pretty clear that convertible geometry, at least as far as kind of like multi-surface bikes go, is kind of like the hot thing currently in the drop bar world. And on the one hand, I really like how companies are giving buyers a lot of choice in terms of what the bikes can be and what they can feel like. But part of me also wonders how much benefit there really is to the general population, how much people will really, will really experiment with moving those things around. And if this is the sort of thing where, because the gravel market has been so amorphous in, in recent years, I wonder how much of this is just companies being unable to really get a handle or really identify what gravel wants to be. And then they're sort of just including everything all at once.
1: Yes, I think I think it comes back to what else what else um saying before, which is you know it's a small company and they kind of want to cover a broad spectrum for a lot of people. For me, I I liken it to mountain bikes because flip chips and mountain bikes is quite common. And personally, I, on my last bike, I had it on a on a Trek Fuel EX, and I set the bike into the low and slack position and never changed it. Exactly. Uh, And I think a lot of people do that, but I think at the same time, the brands offer these things because different markets expect different things of the geometry. And this is kind of just a safe way of reaching a wider audience. And cheaper. And cheaper. You You don't have to make multiple molds. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in Europe where they've got big mountains, the people, a lot of riders tend to ride bikes that aren't quite as slack because they have to climb for hours uh whereas in australia and and suddenly certain, parts in the u.s or canada uh, our trails a lot you know can be a lot shorter and steeper and you know more up and down and pinchier and uh yeah a shorter slack of bike work so it's i think it's just catering to different markets different users and yeah just not pigeonholing yourself
2: and so i've worked on bikes for quite a long time and mm-hmm. I've worked on a lot of these bikes with adjustable geometry. And I've never once had a customer come in and ask me to change the flip chip around or adjust their geometry. Because a lot of them, it's particularly gravel bikes, you have to it's a different brake adapter and all of this. So most people aren't going to do it at home. But I've never once had someone ask me, can you change the geometry on my bicycle?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So yep. I think it's a really stupid thing. More like... Every time I've ever done anything with this is because it's a point of creaking. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like it's one more part that has to fit into something and probably the tolerances aren't great and it eventually will creak. And that's why I am against this. Well, for, for it adds weight me. in all complexity. And you're talking like this one, you said there's no um, proprietary parts, but let's say except for the three, four fiction. years. Yeah, exactly. Three, four yeah. years from now, <laughs> one of those parts gets stripped out. Company is no longer making that bike and then you can't get parts for it. And then your entire bike is trash because this one tiny part that you can adjust the geometry by two degrees is broken. Well, no, that's when you call Dave up and have him print something on his 3D printer. Oh well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> I think it's just like, it's just a thing to market to people to have one more feature in the list of features on their bike. And people are like, ooh, look at all these features. And then it, that's the end of it.
0: Yeah, for, for sure. There are a lot of, There are definitely a lot of questionable aspects about how much people will actually take advantage of the geometry flexibility that's afforded to them. And I think certainly without question, all three of us will agree that even if this sort of
2: thing has some sort of utility, it needs to be done well. I mean, I Um, think it's the same thing, though, I think, as like a gravel bike that someone has two different wheel sets of different, like a 650B and a 700, like similar concept. Most people are going to put a wheel set on their bike and that's what they're going to ride. And then that's it. Like the idea of having these things that you can change is just not in the real world. People don't want to deal with the hassle of doing it.
0: But I guess the thing is, I guess my question is, okay, yes, there are downsides in terms of weight and complexity, potentially creaking. Let's just run on the assumption that it's done well. Let's let's run on the assumption that it's not going to creak. Let's run on the assumption that, whoever whatever company has done it has done it in a way such that you don't have to realign the brake every time um and that you don't have to use like a proprietary tool and stuff like that so let's just assume that it's done well is it a bad thing even if most people are never going to do anything with it um is it a bad thing to offer that sort of flexibility for the small percentage of people who might actually play with it
2: i don't think maybe it's not a bad thing but i don't see why like there's like there's so many bikes on the market. This small percentage of people that have very particular geometry requests or wants or whatever, like there's there is a bike on the market that will tick the boxes. And I don't think that them being like, oh, this one I could tinker with and adjust all these things. Like it's such a small amount of people that are going to deal with that to find that bike that fits perfect for them.
1: I think there's customers here that know what geometry they want and know they're not going to adjust it. And then a bike with flip chips perhaps isn't for them. And then there's other people that like to tinker or they want a bike that can do multiple things. Maybe they, maybe they want to do like one bikepacking trip in the year and they know it's going to be rowdy and they know they're going to fully load up the bike, but every other time they want something fast and racy feeling and they don't want to have two bikes. I think there is a market out there for a bike that is so highly adjustable. But it's not everyone. It's definitely not for everyone. You know, there are going to be people like Zach. I reckon, you know, by what you're saying, you'd much rather have a specialised crux than a bike with flip chips, for example. You'd much rather go yeah. lightweight or a diverge, like yeah one or the other, like yeah. I,
2: yeah, I don't know. I mean, th- there are clearly two. It's like a multi-tool, like. It gets yeah. the job done, but it never good. <laughs> sure. sure, right,
0: right. I mean, there are obviously two opposing views on this because you have certainly a bunch of companies that are adding this, this to their bikes, like mm. Giant, for example, in their latest Revolt. They've added this feature, to, uh, added an adjustable drop. But out is that because bike.
2: Giant wants to, or is it because Cervelo's done it? And it, can't well, use, again, like we everyone we just it, follows each other around and does the same yeah. thing. It,
0: it's hard to say, but but then again, on the other hand, you have a bike like the Trek Checkpoint, which is a huge, huge segment for them. and they've removed the adjustable dropout component from their bike. And again, I don't know if it's, maybe it was the sort of thing where they were just able to take a bunch of weight and complexity out and they deemed that more important. Personally, my guess is that the kind of stereotypical Trek customer probably is that person who is not going to want to mess around with their geometry as much as somebody else. Um, But my guess is that if someone is, finds appeal in a smaller brand that offers that sort of level of adjustability, then my guess is that that person's also going to be more likely to tweak that than someone who is looking for like a mainstream brand that they can just buy off the shelf.
2: I mean, I've, I've kind of just wished companies would just own like this is the geometry that we've created. It rides how we want it to ride for the bike, for what it's designed for. Like companies do this all the time with other parts and products. And that's how they're reasoning for why they do it. Like a proprietary seat post shape. They're like, that's how we want the bike to ride. So that's the seat post you have to reduce. So why is geometry any different?
1: Yeah, I think I think in gravel it's it's an element of brands playing it safe because the sport or the discipline is changing so rapidly and it's so it's so location dependent. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, gravel for me is very different to gravel and boulder because I don't actually have nice gravel roads around here. I just have like <laughs> rocky fire trail that is best done on a mountain bike. Uh, and I think by offering this adjustable geometry you're just you i guess it's playing it safe in that you can kind of cater to every customer regardless of whether they want to put like a 700 by 32 tire or a 700 by 45 tire and when you're talking about that difference of a tire set geometry changes hugely based on the tire you put on so i think this is kind of a way of just i guess countering that so it can be a bike that can kind of be whatever you want it to be and still handle roughly right? Like, I totally get all of that. And you understand what the differences
2: in geometry and trail and all of these Mm. things mean and what they do. I just don't think 99% of bicycle buyers have no idea what trail even is, let alone what it does and how it affects the bicycle. Yeah. So I think you're just... Well, well maybe they should watch the video that we just posted on YouTube the other day, Zach. (laughs) It's a plug. uh,
0: I mean, Zach, I, I get what you're saying and if we look at the mountain bike world i think there are certainly some indications of how this sort of thing can and should be done like if you look at rocky mountain they used to have this system called ride 9 which were basically two kind of like like two flip chips that were nested together in one end of the shock mount where the where the seat stays came in and it gave you nine different options for for leverage rate and spring curve and all this, like it was, it was, way, are, it was way too much. Which is it,
2: like, yeah, people don't know what any of that does,
0: though. That's well, the right, thing, right? Right. And, and but the problem that they, so they wanted to offer all that stuff, and what they found out, and what they have now done on later models is they have reduced the number of variables. So it does seem to me like there probably is some reasonable amount of just, of adjustability that can be offered to people, but it probably also is the case that you shouldn't offer too much adjustability because even people who are pretty savvy in that sort of thing can get overwhelmed with all the different possibilities.
2: And then you make a worse bicycle because you've adjusted too many things, too many different ways. And then all of a sudden sudden it rides terribly. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Well, either way, as I said, this is clearly a thing. My guess is Mm -hmm. that we are going to continue to see more of it and not less of it. So this is certainly a trend that we will continue to keep an eye on. So we'll see what happens here. Um, one thing that I am hopeful anyway, that we can come to a little bit more agreement with is uh, it's pertaining to a JRA column that I'm just finishing up that hopefully will be published maybe by the time this podcast goes live. Um, But it's the idea that with tubeless tires, be it road, gravel, mountain, whatever um, it's the idea that there should be a lot less guesswork in terms of how much sealant should go with a particular tire. Um, And it's, I'm basically proposing that tire brands print right on the tire itself, a suggested amount of sealant that should be used with the tire. Because up to this point, I think, I think we can all agree that tubeless is very widely accepted in the mountain bike world. Um, not quite as much in gravel, although I although I'd say it's kind of more common than not, uh, certainly a lot of resistance on the road, but um, Point being, if there is even, well, if the industry, if the bike industry is going to be putting so much work and money and effort into advancing the whole tubeless thing,
2: why wouldn't they want to just make it easy for people in, in, in every possible way? I feel like tubeless amounts, though, is like the smallest issue of tubeless. It, well, there are a lot of issues with tubeless for sure. But again, like, why wouldn't you do everything possible to I just mean, make everything Like, we were easier? just talking about, though, like, where you ride versus where we ride is completely different. Like people around here, I would say for the most part want more sealant because we have a lot of thorns and it's really dry. So the sealant dries out faster. So people want to run extra sealant because it's just like marginal weight gain. And then they don't have to deal with that with it. And then like, if you're a world cup racer, you're going to run the minimum amount possible because you want to save every gram possible, but. And it only needs to last a day. Yeah. And it only has to last a day. Exactly. Like, yeah. so I mean, maybe like a ballpark recommendation, but Mm. I would rather see everyone figure out tubeless tape before (laughs) how much sealant goes in every tire. Funny funny you should mention tubeless
0: tape, because that's a subject for another JRA column that I'm working on right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I get your point, Zach, and that is something that a lot of tire brands that I spoke to mentioned already. Um, But my issue right now is that nearly every tire brand that I talked to seemed pretty comfortable with deferring almost completely to sealant brands as far as recommending how much sealant to put in the tire. Um, but the issue there is when you look at the sealant brands and look at the sort of information that they have, even they are extremely vague in terms of how much sealant you're supposed yeah, to put in the tires.
2: the tire company wants to let it be the sealant's problem and the sealant company wants to let it be the tire's problem. Exactly. Nobody wants to be responsible. So the one exception
0: that I found to this is that um, Bontrager was very helpful in the sense that... Um, right on the product webpage for every single tubeless compatible tire that they have, they have a specific recommendation for how much sealant they say should go in that tire. And granted, they're also quite explicit in saying that um, this is the recommended amount for their own Bond Trigger sealant. Um, but I, I think that should be expected certainly, but most brands out there, most certain, certainly most bigger brands anyway, they have their own brands of sealant anyway. Um, so yes, while there are vari- variations in terms of how much sealant you will use per a, a particular make and model of sealant. In my experience, the biggest variation has come, has, has been due to the type of casing that's on there, like a challenge or like a compass tire, or even like a lot of the WTB stuff, those casings have always been much more porous and much harder to seal. So I've always had to run more sealant in those. And then you have other brands like, I don't know, like Goodyear and American classic and, um, I think even Conti, up until the most recent generation, I think
2: those so like up- tubulars. Some tubulars, the base tape soaks up more glue than others. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an art. But
0: it is an art. But it, it it's not. I don't feel like it's an art that people should kind of have to learn over time or kind of like guess at. Like, if the main variable in terms of how much sealant is required for a tire for for average conditions, if the main variable is how much surface area there is in the inside of the casing. And how porous that casing is, isn't the tire brand best equipped to
2: figure that out? You would think so. I mean, I would just like put a number on and err on the high side. Like it can't be that hard.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you touched on this, but there is quite a bit of variance in the sealants themselves. Like, you know, some of these sealants foam up, so you're you're effectively getting half the amount for a given volume. Um but yes. Zach? So if, let's say, theoretically, companies put
2: sealant amounts on all of their tires and everything, mm. would people listen to it? Because there are also pressure recommendations on a tire nobody listens to. I,
0: I, I agree. I, I agree. They're so it would be like, oh,
2: this is, you don't want that. Like, you want to go between this range because they're whatever. But
0: we all I, mean, I feel like we always have to keep in mind, and this is something I certainly try to remind myself of all the time, is that... We are not necessarily the typical users. Most people out there are not going to be as experienced, as savvy as we are with a lot of this stuff. So if someone is fairly new to the tubeless
2: thing. Then they're going to take it to the bike shop.
0: Well, they may take it to the bike shop or if they are just trying to do it at home, like they're going to be looking for the easiest source of information for
1: how they should do this. Yeah, which is the tubeless FAQ on cycling tips. They
2: go to inflate it with their floor pump and it doesn't work, and then sealant pools (laughs) all over the garage floor. Yes, Zach, we we
0: all know that you're, we all know your opinions on tubeless in general. I think tubeless
2: (laughs) is fine, but it's just, you can't be talking about making it user friendly for the average person just because of sealant amount when we're not gonna address all the other problems that (laughs) are way less user friendly than how much sealant they pour in.
0: But we have talked about those other problems before, and I do, I do honestly, legitimately believe that a lot of the standardization that is coming about now with the rim shapes. Uh, and with kind of more of the convergence with tire bead diameters and shapes, like a lot of that is getting better, yeah uh, because a lot of the experience a lot of the negative experiences that we've had with tubeless tires in general of any genre has been as a result of all this variation with see we see in bead seat diameters and bead shapes and all this, and all this other stuff. so again if you if you run on the assumption that that aspect is getting better, which to me it does seem like it is, then again, if this is the direction that the bicycle industry is going to be going in overall. Why wouldn't you want to make every aspect of it as simple as possible? Yeah, yeah, I, for
1: sure. I think, yeah, there is definitely room to do this, but I think there's also issues. And I, I kind of see a day where like I recently bought a new dishwasher and when you were shopping dishwashers, they all have like these partnered detergents. <laughs> most of them, like in Australia, it's finished. Like most of these brands recommend finish. And there's like a finish sticker on your dishwasher saying like you know this is the recommended uh detergent and did you buy the recommended stuff i've only uh, no i've actually already used the wrong stuff uh um, <laughs> oh. and, <laughs> and i'm not listening to the tire pressure on my tire but um yeah but i think there's probably room for the tire industry to go this way where we'll probably see a day where they have a suggested amount of tire sealant for a tire and they specify which sealant it is I think that's probably where this will head if they do go the route of adding high sealant recommendations. All right. Well, I feel like we can debate this topic back and forth a fair bit. Um,
0: <laughs> but I think overall, I mean, does it seem like it's like overall a good,
2: a good idea for people? Why not yes. put one more metric on packaging? Yeah. As that's long like as it's clear
1: between uh, milliliters and PSI. So people aren't putting... 80 PSI on the bike tires. <laughs> wow, oh, I didn't even think about that. Okay, uh, all
0: right, anyway. All right, Dave, we're gonna turn back to you because you recently published an update of a pretty big comparison article where you evaluated, uh, you evaluated a whole bunch of different derailleur hanger alignment tools. Uh, hmm. Which ones did you test this time around
1: and which ones were the standouts and why? I uh, tested a bunch of them from Abbey, Park Tool, junior uh, a couple from AliExpress, well, one from AliExpress, uh, the one sold by Wiggle, which is also sold by Superbee, a few other ones. Uh, Wolf Tooth was an outlier. Their design's completely different. Um, but yeah, it's I guess the the, the why the tool's important um, is... Sorry, was that your question? Well, I was just saying, like, we're going to get
0: to why for sure. Oh, but which okay. ones... Which were the standouts, and why were th- why I mean, why did they stand out? I
2: saw, I saw the headline. I didn't mm. even have to read the article, and I knew which one would win. You knew. <laughs>
1: well, uh, yeah. The problem the problem with the the one I picked is there's some unhappy people that I didn't actually include the six hundred dollar unobtainium tool from no one's uh, buy Efficient fellow, um, and it's too heavy, anyways. Yeah, so there are a few mechanics that are like, oh, you really needed to compare. It. I wanted to know how much better it was over the Abbey. Um, but yeah, it's Abbey Bike Tools did take the win. Uh, And it comes down to precision. So theirs basically has zero uh, free play in it. So yeah, when you're adjusting, say, a 12 or 13 speed group set, you need to be quite precise in how well that hang is aligned. And a lot of these cheaper tools actually have quite a lot of free play in them. So as you're using the tool, they kind of have a bit of one to two millimeters of variance as as you're trying to measure uh, so that can actually throw off your measurement by quite a bit. Uh, whereas the Abbey was basically the only tool that I tested that had no free movement, uh, and it was also just happened to be the quickest and easiest to use. So I mean, that's, that's the other thing with the Abbey too. It's for
2: basically every other trailer hanger alignment tool, it's way way more difficult to also measure in between the seat stays and chain stays. Where the Abbey, it's so quick and easy, and it. it I mean, if you use a tool. Like any amount of time it pays for itself.
0: Yeah. So, it, so it's, there's al- a, it's almost like the Abbey tool was designed by someone who's done a lot
1: of wrenching before. Weird. Amazing. Weird. <laughs> so strange. But yeah, it's the, and, and the other part of it. So yeah, the ability to, I guess, uh, turn or swivel the, the indicator rod around obstacles, say so you had fenders or or a rack on the frame. Um, that's a big element. And I guess a lot of the, the tools that did better had that feature, Uh, but more importantly, one of the features that I really found annoying or or beneficial was the ability to lock that indicator rod in place. So there's quite a few tools out there that just use spring tension or even just O-rings to hold the indicator rod in place. So So basically- So stupid. So yeah, so as you're using the tool, you set it at one point in the rim, you move it round to then measure on the other point of the rim, you accidentally bump the tire, you've lost your measurement, you start again. Or you come around to the other side of the rim and the hanger is bent inwards and you then touch the indicator rod against the rim. You have to start again. So if the indicator rod locks into the tool, you don't have that issue. So I think Park Tool were actually quite surprised that I put their new higher end, more precise tool lower than their cheaper tool. Uh, I ranked it lower and it's just simply because you can't lock the indicator rod and I found that really infuriating. Okay, well, uh, looking outside of which tool... Won the shootout,
0: Um, Wade. Wade Wallace. I'm referring to uh, Mm. Wade, our big tool fan, founder and overlord. I should say, Mm. Uh, Wade. If you're happening to listen to this, this this segment's for you, Um, because one question I have with all this is, even if there, if well, let's let's just say there's not a whole lot of debate in your view as to which one of these tools is is best. Um, How much utility are these tools? Or how much utility is there for tools like this outside of a shop setting? Like how many mm. how many home mechanics really are going to be using something like this? And how important is it to actually have one? Basically, what uh, I'm actually what, basically what I'm asking is how can you justify the time that you spent in, in writing and in researching and testing all this stuff, Dave?
1: Because uh, Google tells me people are interested, but also um, <laughs> uh, I think. The reality is, is that this tool is far more important than people realize. And for people doing their own work at home and not really going into bike shops for any of their repair work and don't have this tool, uh, most likely are running compromise shifting that they're unaware of. Um, and I think the reality is, is that especially older rim brake bikes, uh, that were running say 10 or 11 speed shifting, the, the hangers on those were actually often quite weak and quite thin. Uh, and it really didn't take much to bend them and typically out of the box they'll bend already Uh, and those anything with say 10 speed or more really becomes quite sensitive to hanger alignment and a tool like this is extremely beneficial and it doesn't take much to then need it again. All it takes is someone to rest their bike against yours wrongly at the cafe or for you to put your bike in the car and accidentally put a bag on top of the the derailleur. You're going to need one of these tools.
2: I would say if you're going to have one of these at home and you have an 11 or 12 speed bike that things have to be very precise. Mm. Mo- like the cheaper tools will work. And if you crash in your derailleur, the hanger is visibly bent. It will be easier to get it straightened. But if you're just having a shifting issue, it is not worth buying. Not the nice one. Cause the tools have so much play that I could have. I could have a hanger that's slightly tweaked. The bike's having a shifting issue. And I use the, let's say the park one that has quite a bit of play in it.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and it could show up perfectly straight with within that tool's tolerance then i put the abbey one on it and it's way out of whack Mm. and then you use the abbey and it straightens and then it actually improves the shifting where the park like if you bought the i mean it's what like 40 dollars or something which is more what someone at home would probably buy yeah but i think my opinion it's not worth it like i would rather Mm -hmm. just go pay a shop to fix it or buy the
1: $185 Abbey tool. The reality is a lot of shops that you take your bike to will probably be using that park tool that you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, right. that's so, I mean, also, a, <laughs> also a whole other conversation. <laughs> but
0: right. be, because I guess the issue here is that as we have packed more and more sprockets onto those cassettes, and as, as drivetrains have required more and more precision in how they are set up and adjusted, it's more important than ever to make sure that the, the foundation for where a lot of these parts are mounted is where it's supposed to be in terms of alignment and that sort yeah. of thing, right?
2: Like, the derailleur yes. can only work so well. Like, it's it's going to do the same thing regardless, but if it's bolted to something that's not also straight and aligned and everything, the derailleur, yep. you it can't you can't expect it to work at
1: all. Yeah, and I'd, I'd go further and just say, like, um, there were some comments of people saying, like, uh, I don't need to bend a derailleur hanger ever. If I think it's bent, I just replace the hanger. And the but reality yeah. is is that, that <laughs> hanger is being bolted to a dropout that potentially isn't perpendicular to the axle. Yeah, and you or need there's to bend the hanger. To be, yeah. 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 So like, I would always recommend if you're installing a new hanger on a frame, you should also get that checked for alignment. Or yeah. if you're carrying a spare hanger, the best thing to do is to put it on a frame, get it checked for alignment, bend it straight, and then keep it as a spare. Yeah. Like almost
2: almost never does do new hangers bolt
1: on frames and are perfectly straight
2: yeah unless so, it's like an un- unpainted very high quality metal frame yeah absolutely
1: so yeah so going back to one of the previous questions i think there was a time where this was a shop only tool there was a time you know when we we're all on eight and nine speed drivetrains, and hanger alignment wasn't so critical to having your shifting fine Back then you could just like stick a allen wrench in there and yeah, kind of eyeball it good enough bend it away it yeah. was good enough and and then you know that that was an absolutely fine time to take your bike into a shop if you thought you had hangar alignment issues and get it done by a professional and you didn't need to own this tool. I don't think we're in at that time anymore. I think 11, 12, even 13 speed has changed that. And this is now a tool that a lot of consumers that call themselves home mechanics should own. Yeah. Oh, And this is where
0: this is where grumpy old me thinks like, oh, the glory days of DRDX. DX. So yep. good, <laughs> yeah.
1: But the right. flip side to all of this, what's what's kind of worrying me is that um, disc brake frames, through axles and the hangers there, are actually quite a bit thicker than they used to be, so they're less susceptible to bending. Um, yeah, so disc brake. So yeah, so we're kind of getting to a point where things are improving in that regard, but uh, the tool still needed. We may have to save that for another
0: rant episode. Yeah. So that, in case people, in case people, uh, I guess, soften to the idea that all we do is just complain about things here. We'll just, we're just going to have to wait a little while to do that again. Okay. We'll hold off right. just a little All while. Right. Next time. All right. Well, speaking of fixing things at home, uh, let's go ahead and get into this week's Ask a Mechanic segment.
1: Derailers, bearings, disc and rim brakes, and chain All
0: right. Our first question comes from God, you know, I know I asked you this before as far as your pronunciation, but now I can't remember if it's Mark Martinet or Mark Mark Martinet. Mark, you'll have I'm to. Sure, like, it's one of those. It's one of those. Mark, you'll have to remind me again. Anyway, uh, Mark is wondering: Is there any way to use a Campagnolo 12-speed bike with a Saris H3 Direct Drive Trainer? Said it's not something that's supported by Saris, but specifically the Campagnolo 13-speed uh, or the Campagnolo 12-speed freehub body. Um, and his searching online points to no. Supposedly, uh, he's wondering is there something that would allow this? And the reason why he's asking is because he currently has a 10-speed SRAM mechanical groupset that is getting pretty old. He would like to stay with mechanical shifting. But his one bike, uh, currently a disc brake Alchemy Atlas, is using a cobbled together mechanical disc setup, in part due to the part shortage. If he has to, he'll move to electronic Shimano or SRAM, and that he'll do that if he has to. But he says Core's 12 speed mechanical looks
1: really interesting to him. Um, first thought is just right outside. Second thought <laughs> is. Uh... I need to confirm this, but I'm I'm hearing more and more people doing sort of hybrid group sets between Shimano and Campagnolo and SRAM, and it sounds like there's a reasonable amount of cross-compatibility between the 12-speed group sets, just like there was with 11-speed. Yep. I'm hearing yep. more and more people having fine success mixing and matching, uh, yep. and at the very least, I believe you'd be able to get an off-brand cassette, like a KCNC or something in a 12-speed. And make it work just fine on your on the HD freehub that that trainer uses and shift just fine. But I think there's also probably quite a lot of chance that you'd be able to get like a, a SRAM XDR cassette and freehub body or even just use the new Shimano 12 speed Altegra.
0: Yep, that was going to be my suggestion. So Zach and I both looked online a little bit. Um, I think, Zach, I had more time to do this earlier than you did today. I had minimal Um, time. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, uh, Dave, as you mentioned, from what I can tell, there is quite a lot of cross compatibility now possible between the current 12-speed road drivetrains. Um, One in particular that was pretty intriguing was the idea that someone was running uh, a Campagnolo mechanical levers and derailleurs with SRAM AXS uh, chain cassette and chain rings. which I, I'm opposite so what I do, but okay. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but but, but my, my guess, my just, guess is that this person was trying to get get the like the really wide gear range that you can get with SRAM. Um, but in any event, the, the the point being that there does seem to be a fair bit of compatibility. So, Mark, yes, we we have. Well, unfortunately, we have not been able to firsthand confirm this, but from everything that we can gather here. Uh, and particularly since you are using this on a home trainer setup, it does sound like you will be able to put a Shimano 12 speed for indoor, probably an Ultegra cassette uh, on your Saris H3 trainer and be able to run a chorus 12 speed mechanical bike on that trainer. Yeah, that's what it sounds like to
2: us. I mean, I mm-hmm. would say do not let your trainer influence your group set decision buying. Like if you want Campy Chorus, then buy it and then figure the trainer out later. I wouldn't. Went by a specific bike just so that it works on your trainer, unless all you do yeah. is ride the trainer. Yep. And then Fair. in which case you probably already have a dedicated trainer bike.
0: Yep. Um, moving on, Mike Shields has a question about gravel stuff. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about gravel uh, foam inserts, for, uh, foam tire inserts for gravel bikes. Mike is wondering what made us seem to settle definitively on CushCore versus the others. Um, Mike, I just want to chime in. I, I, I should probably make it clear that we haven't necessarily – settled on Core being like the absolute absolute best overall for everything um but it is very good and offers some advantages over other stuff out there
2: it also seems the least pool nudie pool noodley esque. It's, like it's the most, most specifically it's like it's, designed for the task yeah it's like actually yeah. foam that's designed to go in a tire not like you would go to the hardware st- or the i don't yeah. know store and buy a pool noodle and cut it up and stick it in your tire
0: yeah. Um, so yeah, so we, we haven't necessarily specific chosen chosen that one as the absolute best. So another one that uh, I would say comes a very close second right now is is uh, from, I think they're UK-based, a uh, uh, company called Rimpact. So that company uses a, a similar sort of triangular shape and that also offers pretty similar casing support. Um, but Dave, I think you'll agree with me on this. The reason why... Uh, most of us have gravitated toward an insert like that or with that sort of cross-section is because it does offer not only good rim protection and flat protection, that sort of thing, but it also offers really good tire casing support at very low pressures. Exactly, uh, And that's why yeah. it stands out to us.
1: Yeah, so like the whole idea of the tire insert is that it lets you run lower pressure, but the downside to running lower pressure is you lose that support or that stiffness through the casing. And yeah, the the Core assists with that. So right. you're not just I, trading one thing off for another. Can I play devil's advocate? Of course. Please. Don't you always? Why
2: not run a tire with a thicker casing to have the support? Because it kind of takes away from the, the ride quality,
0: I feel like. Because mm. the thing that I like about a foam tire insert with a softer tire is because you do get the suppleness and the ride quality and traction benefits of having a softer casing and being able to run that at a lower pressure. But you don't also have the, the, the risk of destroying your rim. So anyway, Mike, that, that is why, that's why we've gravitated toward those. So it's, it's, we are definitely not saying a hundred percent. I mean, it may still end up this way after I finish the testing, but uh, we're not saying for sure. Cushcore is the absolute, absolute best, but yeah, I mean, I
1: do like the, the casing support yeah that's a, that's and, a and there's also a big element of it's it's what you want out of it as well if if you just simply want to drop a few psi and never feel like you're going to damage your rims there are other options it's just depends whether you want the whole package or just one feature or one benefit moving on uh dave this one
0: is this one's queued up perfectly for you this one comes up from david lee uh David's work, uh, his work, uh, his company apparently just gave him a gift voucher for 100 uh, hundred Australian dollars uh, to a local tool shop mm. of all people. Very interesting. Mm. He said he has most of the basic cycling related tools, he thinks, but he's keen to hear any suggestions we might have to add to the toolbox. He also has to point out that he also wants to point out that it's not a firm $100 budget.
1: Mm. What do you um, think you should buy, Dave? I, I would put it towards a $1,000 gift voucher. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's it's an interesting one it really depends where you're starting from but i would say at a tool shop you're going to have access to just your general household tools and i think it's worth investing in things like a quality set of hex keys some good screwdrivers uh but if you have those then i would look to things like your pliers or your cable cutters or a good pair of like knipex pliers wrench we'll we'll get we'll use that voucher yeah they're so So good it really depends on what you have now but um yeah there's there's a lot of ways to go with that but something like a knipex ply wrench you'll never be disappointed with so um you can use it for so many things it is it's the absolute multi-tool so um yeah i i use mine all the time and yeah it's it's highly recommended they are expensive but it is a very useful tool if you're constantly working on bikes um, so yeah, that's that's sort of the starting point. If you've got all that, then perhaps a nice set of metric spanners because they are still come in handy when you're using various other tools. And um, yeah, like for me, a lot of bearing tools and similar still require open end spanners. Well, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of debate
0: from us on this one because I think we're all in all in agreement of that. Yeah. Uh, this one is is an interesting question. This one comes from Jeremy Hammond. Uh, Jeremy would like to know when you are changing chain rings, do you use grease? a light Loctite or anti-seize compound for the chain ring
2: bolts. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I like to use grease because a lot of manufacturers use Loctite. And when you go to break them loose, they almost spark because they're so <laughs> tight and Loctited in place. It's a good smell though. <laughs> yeah. The smell it's a very is, distinctive smell. smells smell is terrible.
0: <laughs> uh, I use a combo actually because I use that, that sparking or that, that, kind of metal smell that, that you that you smell. Um, I'm pretty sure that comes from the, the heads of the bolts coming loose yeah. from the chain ring, not from the threads. Um, so I actually like to use grease on the interface between the bolt heads and the chain rings or crank arm, but I like to use uh, blue Loctite for the threads.
2: I mean, I also put a light film of grease in between the chain ring itself and the spider where they kind of contact each other just to... Get rid of one potential creep point. Um, and I would say, like, the argument against Loctite, if the bolts are tightened properly, they shouldn't come loose with just grease. But if the bolts are tightened properly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But, uh, gre- I'm, but grease uh, on the
0: heads and, and Loctite on the threads is, I think, pretty yeah. safe.
1: Yeah. Uh, and definitely use a light Loctite, like a blue kind of Loctite. Yeah. But um, yes, d- nah. regardless though, use something. Something's better than nothing. Yes.
0: Yeah. But definitely not, definitely not green or red. <laughs> Uh, all right. This one, I think this is a pretty straightforward answer here. Michael Gwynn. Uh, Michael's got an Ultegra, Ultegra 8000 Di2 setup. He's thinking about switching to 105 7000 cranks in a 160 millimeter length. Uh, he said he's fairly sure he can just swap out the cranks without any other issues, but he just wanted to double check. Is there going to be any issue with the front derailleur? No. I am mean, pretty sure. Those are both sure 11
2: speed, right? They're both. Uh,
0: 8000 they
2: is 11 speed. 7000, I believe, is also
0: Yep, yep. I mean, that should be as straightforward as can be. Yeah. Same, same brand, basically just the same, uh, same geometry for the crank. I mean, you should be, that should be as straightforward a swap as there could possibly be unless, you are, unless you're changing chainring sizes. But unless you're changing chain ring sizes, my guess is that you shouldn't even have to adjust the front derailleur afterward. It should yeah. be as, you can, as easy as could be. You can even reuse your left crank arm. You could <laughs> even reuse your left crank arm, correct. All right, that was an easy one. Um, this one is more interesting. This one comes from Andrew Tauro. Uh, how much should I be concerned riding a stainless steel, specifically Columbus XCR frame on the West coast in the winter time? He said he's ridden in the rain plenty of times, but he's losing sleep over it rusting, even though in theory it can't, uh, he has to wait a month or to get it serviced, So he's wondering what he can proactively do after riding in the rain, wet roads or washing it.
2: I mean, I'm not an expert on metal. But I feel like stainless is already better than normal steel. And um, I would say wash your bike regularly and then also have the inside, uh, what's it called? The frame saver? Frame savered. JP have, Weigel. Yeah, have your bike frame savered just to be safe. Uh, and there's usually
0: a drain hole in the bottom bracket. Uh, so if that's not already open, then just um, presumably if you're running a Columbus XCR frame, it probably has an under bottom bracket cable guide um if there isn't already a drain hole pull that bolt and just let whatever fluid dribble out of there um but anyway uh kind of more to the point i did some looking into this a little bit even if you go on the assumption that that uh that the xcr tubing itself is stainless and mostly impervious to corrosion keep in mind that you also have to put those tubes together somehow so andrew i don't know exactly what frame you're running and i don't know if it's tig welded or brazed or whatever um but, um, the brazing material may not be totally corrosion proof. The welding rods that are used in that frame may not be corrosion proof. If it's lugged, the lugs themselves almost certainly are not stainless. So, I mean, if they're, if those are painted, that's something to keep in mind. Personally, I feel like if you are worried about corrosion, there are probably other areas of your bike in general that you should be more concerned about first. Um, like headset, steer tube, seat post. Yeah, it's just like frame bolts that sort of are going to start to have surface rust on them and yep. stuff. But if you are worried about the frame, what I would recommend is contacting your frame manufacturer. If it's Columbus XCR, it's probably some smaller, some smaller outfit. Um, find out exactly what sort of welding rod or brazing filler material that they used and then do some research into that to find out if those materials are corrosion resistant and then go from there.
2: That's where I would go. Yeah, I mean, I would say, particularly in the winter when the roads are nasty and stuff, I would just wash your bike regularly to keep any of that nastiness off of the bicycle,
1: rather than just letting it sit there and kind of or go. Or even if you're just riding it indoors, do the same. (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: Or uh, if you have room for them, run fenders. Fenders are amazing; they keep so much of the stuff off your bike. Um, All right, last question, and then we will wrap for the week. This one comes from Mike Connell. It's about uh, bike packing and maintenance. Um, back when he was running tube to tires, he always packed an extra tube, but now that he's running tubeless, he is wondering, um, well, he, first he's saying he's assuming he probably should practice uh tire repair before he goes on a trip. Um, he's also wondering, uh, well, he's also assumed that he needs a strong enough pump to properly seat a tire in case he has to repair something. But, uh, I guess what's our opinion on sealant and plugs and sh- I guess, can he assume because it's light gravel conditions that a
2: puncture is unlikely? I and mean, basically he's asking what he should do to be prepared. I mean, I think we've talked about this a bit before, but we I would have. definitely... But clearly people are still wondering the same yeah, question. Definitely recommend plugs for tubeless. They're amazing. They're great. Not the little bacon strips, but like Dynaplug dyna or the stand start. Both of those are kind of head and shoulders above the rest. But I would also still bring tubes because sometimes you just need to throw a tube in. And a patch kit in case you, yeah. in case you don't want to carry
1: more than one tube yep um prevention is key as well so run tires that aren't stupidly thin um, that are suitable for the purpose Um, make sure you've got them with the correct amount of fresh sealant inside which won't be listed on the side of your tire (laughs) Uh (laughs) and uh that is a huge start and then yeah um what zach said plugs i would also take a small bottle of sealant just in case you have a puncture you're, you're able to plug it but say your sealant in the meantime has come out of the tire or you've find that you don't have enough of it you can always top up the sealant and then failing all that you move the tube yeah and i like to carry uh, a small pump
0: that uh, ideally also doubles as a co2 inflator or just at least a very small pump and a co2 with a with an inflator um just because that co2 even though it's not recommended for use with sealant necessarily it does often still come in handy there are times when you just don't have an option um, I would also recommend a, uh, a small valve core tool because mm-hmm. you can, they're basically weigh nothing and they take up no room, especially the little plastic ones that are often kind of just free or just laying around somewhere. Um, those two things can be really helpful too because you can use that valve core remover and those little bottles, bottles of sealant to put sealant in your tire. Um, and then you can use the CO2 to start. And then if you have to top things off or if you have another flat, you can use that pump. It's just always good to be prepared. And then even if you carry all that stuff with you, it's still not that big of a kit. Yeah,
2: and if you bring all of it with you, you're almost guaranteed to not have a flat. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Bring an umbrella too, just to make sure it doesn't rain.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, with that, we are going to wrap up this week's episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. Thanks as always for listening. Uh, If you haven't already, please consider giving us a rating or review on iTunes because it does help a lot of people find this show, which helps us quite a bit. Uh, You may or may not have noticed that we have no ads on this podcast and that is not because people have not asked us about it. Uh, It's a conscious choice. So we have just elected to just keep this show ad free, but it does help It does help us to have as many people listening to it as possible. Uh, So if you have not already done so, make sure you please subscribe using whatever podcast service you use. And most of all, please tell your buddies about Nerd Alert because we just like having more people listen to the show. We like talking to more people. So with that, we will see you next time. Pretty sure at this point, this this podcast episode should be landing on Monday. And I believe we are going to be taking a little bit of a break over the holidays so you may have to do you may have to do without nerd alert for a week or two but uh to be
2: determined by Maybe way, we could do anyway. one of these from like a ski chair lift we could potentially that seems like a fun holiday activity or just not
1: <laughs> I'll, anyway. I'll be on <laughs> a lift next week yeah no snow around
2: <laughs> but yeah right yeah. right well yeah, you, you can... can go do it with a bike and we can,
1: <laughs> yeah
0: you can you can call <laughs> in <laughs> sounds good anyway thanks again for listening we will see you next time